0: From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WNBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk.
1: Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Taylor. Welcome to Bike Talk. And I think we got to start talking about the Tour de France. You guys uh, been yeah. watching that? Nick, you been watching that?
0: I'm busy, really busy. I've heard you talk about it.
1: Well, listen, I, I don't want to plug NBC Sports, but if you go to NBCSports.com, they have like a 20-minute highlight of every race. And the race this year is, it's right back to the Lance Armstrong-Jan Ulrich era with these two guys, Tade Bogacha and uh, Jonas Vindegaard. And they are swapping the leaders, you know, almost every day. one One wins by 30 seconds and the next day, the next guy wins by 30 seconds. It's an epic race this year.
2: That's super cool. A friend of mine who comes and fixes my bike, Lucas Roten, he he won the MTB National Championships this week for the uh, 25 to 29-year-old age group. He, he's the national champion.
1: The 25 to 29 age group. That's an easy age group, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he fixes, he like comes to your house and fixes your bike. Will he still do that? maybe Seamus he could answer listener questions if if uh, any listeners have questions for a certified mechanic you know someone who's really great I think Um, he would do that I think that he would honestly so send us your questions if you have a bike maintenance question send it to us at biketalk.org and uh, we'll pass it on to Seamus's mechanic we've been talking a lot about what's on our mind you know what's on your mind this week
0: yeah this is a segment that you Taylor Seamus and Lindsay did let's hear this really quick and then we'll come back and um Check in. So this is a conversation with you, Seamus, and Lindsay. A few weeks ago, it's pre-recorded. What's on your mind this week?
2: I have been thinking a, a lot about the influence car commercials have. We have these hugely expensive commercials featuring, you know, people like Brie Larson, and we don't have the billions and billions of dollars that go into these car commercials. And yeah,
1: I have never seen a bicycle commercial on the Super Bowl.
2: No. And I think we should change that and have a commercial talking about the realities of street safety and cars.
3: Deaths are going up 30% a year for the past three years. What the number one killer of children, this is an epidemic. I think we're just starting to realize it.
2: I was growing up, uh, you know, 80s, 90s, I would be on my bike or my skateboard, kind of just out in the world doing whatever. It's hard to fathom letting my kids just go for a bike ride in Silver Lake right now. I think there's a couple reasons for that. You know, cars are faster now. They've enhanced safety for everybody inside the car, but probably to the detriment of everybody outside of the car. You know, the influence of car commercials make it very difficult for alternative
1: transportation methods to take root. I think the automobile companies would say that they're just building what the consumers demand, but I don't think that's the case. I but, think they are promoting what the consumers demand by these multi-million dollar commercials.
2: I think people don't want to be in their cars. I really believe that. It's fun to drive a sports car if there's nobody else around or something. But like, who does that? And what are we even talking about when we talk about <laughs> You know where I mean?
3: like, in LA is there enough traffic to okay. drive this fabulous Porsche?
2: You don't see enough energy behind the effort to get people out of cars. A lot of where we are at is a re- result of car commercials, right? Like we totally. don't we don't have cigarette commercials like we used to, and I think a lot less people smoke. That right? is a
3: great comparison. We yeah. banned cigarette commercials
2: yeah.
3: because we didn't want people to smoke.
2: In the car commercials, it's not even that they're they're selling cars. They're selling a A a lifestyle idea behind the car. Like people are furious in traffic. You get road rage because they the expectation is I have this car. I want to be driving it like Brie Larson. Right. I want to be driving it like like Joe Biden.
3: I don't think you can have a city with everybody in a car.
2: No.
1: Yeah. I I mean, you can but it's not a fun city to be in. It's like, well, and it's not going to go anywhere. You're not going to be able to get anywhere. You know, you're not going to be able to get to the store. Okay,
3: well, Lindsay, what's on your mind? Speed cameras have been on my mind. Speed cameras are so important because if you don't slow the cars down, you're just never going to get people on bikes. And if you can't get people on bikes, you can't get them to transit. And if you can't get people on bikes and transit, how on earth are we going to deal with traffic? And how on earth are we going to deal with climate emissions? We cannot hit our climate goals without cutting the amount we drive car trips by 25%. It's a huge amount. And that's to like have like a reasonable climate goal, not like the real climate goals, which is like zero carbon mobility. Speed cameras open up the possibility for safety. And then you get bikes and then you can get transit. And then you can really see the end of traffic. So that's been on my mind.
2: Nobody thinks that the speed camera bill is a panacea of some kind. You know, it's not a a silver bullet and it's not going to have this detrimental impact. It's assessed to the car. It's a
1: small fine. You know, what's on my mind this week is it's racing season. Bike racing is such an amazing sport. It has spawned all kinds of bike clubs all over the country that dedicate themselves to serious riding spandex and racing and things like that. And what's been on my mind is how do we get those people involved in what we're talking about, about safe streets and bike advocacy? Most of them ride two to three hundred miles a week on our streets as they train and practice for their racing, but they're not very involved in the advocacy. So that's what I want to start dealing with: is how do we get these highly professional people involved in our battle. Yeah, I love it. If, if you're listening to the podcast, if you have any ideas, if you're a sport writer, we'd love to have you on the show. We'd love to hear any questions you might have or thoughts you might have about what we're talking about. how do we make streets safer for everybody, for children, for commuters and for sport riders. But why is it so hard to make biking safe?
3: How do we scale up bikes? How do we get people on bikes? I think it's a safety issue. I want to be on my stand-up bike, you know, my beach cruiser, and I will bike everywhere. I will never get my car and I will not clog up your traffic if it's safe. I think there's a little bit of shaming and scolding, like, well, if you were in better shape, you'd want to bike on a freeway. And it's like, no, I've got kids. I'm anxious. The data shows 92% of people are are like me. They don't want to put their lives in danger. I would just love to see child safe biking. I'd love to see politicians... And the bike community really, like start a conversation about how do we make it safe for for kids to bike? And if it's safe for an eight year- old, it's going to be safe for everybody.
2: I think that we just need to see more of an effort promoting the ideas of mass transit. the the LCI, the little communities initiative idea, it makes so much sense. You everybody can walk in their neighborhood and it's safe, but it's hard because it has to go through a specific process. And throughout that process, the pressures get to attack it over and over and over again.
1: So, well, you know, you know, picking up on that, Seamus, I just saw something that talked about how when a city put in a hundred million dollar investment into widening a highway, the public wasn't engaged at all. The DOT just made the decision to spend the money and widen the highway, and when it came to putting in a bike lane on a neighborhood street. Every single neighbor had to have their chance to complain or speak up as to why they wanted that to happen. And there's a certain point we just put in the bike lane and don't worry about the backlash.
2: Look at Culver City. I mean, they just put in everything and now they're going to take it all out. Yeah, yeah. This really is about broadening the conversation, saying the things that are true, you know, about the dangers of cars and the better quality of life that we could achieve through... (laughs) Just changing our transportation system.
1: But if we can make it just safe enough to go from your house to Trader Joe's or from your house to the bank or from your house to the magazine kiosk or the corner store, that's a start.
3: This concept of safety is for a lot of people, risk averse people like me, it's on off. I don't engage in any behavior other than getting in a car that I perceive to be dangerous. I literally won't do it. We know that that's most people. That's over 90% of people. So that's the chasm.
1: I mean, cars are going to be hard to beat, you guys. Especially with them
2: commercials. And every commercial break, Brie Larson or somebody is tearing it up in some... You're really down on Brie I know, Larson. I
3: got to see these. Brie, I love Brie
2: Larson. I think she's an amazing actress. I'm sad about the car commercials. How do you compete with that?
1: Well, it... Sure is hard to get people out of cars when every car commercial, you know, never shows anybody stuck in traffic.
2: I know. And we could regulate those car commercials or have, when you buy a car, it can come with a warning label on it that says, you know, the likelihood that you're going to kill someone or you're going to injure someone and even the impact on the environment. I mean, it could say that on the sticker, cigarettes say these cause
1: cancer. After you pay for this car, it will still cost you approximately $10,000 a year to own and operate.
2: Or even it's the leading cause of greenhouse gas in the state. Watching sports and seeing all these car commercials really um, steered me towards supporting the Healthy Streets Initiative. And you want to say what it is? Yeah, it's going to force the city of Los Angeles to implement their mobility plan, which includes their safe streets designs whenever they repave a road.
1: If you're going to repave the road, stripe it and put in a protected bike lane, if that's what the mobility plan calls for.
2: Regardless of the outcome of the initiative in the election, I think that these transportation departments should be encouraging people to get out of their cars and to try the, the transit systems that we're spending billions of dollars on. Right. That is one of the things that Healthy Streets Initiative will be able to do through a campaign, a real campaign.
0: And it's going to be on the ballot in March. We'll keep up with that. And Lindsay talked about speed cams, among other things, and the speed cam bill in California passed the assembly, right?
2: It passed the state assembly and also passed, it's moving through the Senate now. And it passed the Senate Transportation Committee in August. It has to go to the Senate Appropriations Committee. And that is always a big hurdle. That is a committee where bills go to die. So hopefully it gets through that. Right. then it goes to the senate floor then it has to go back to the assembly and then it can go to the governor i'm
1: just a bill sitting on Capitol <laughs> <little> hill
4: yeah. <laughs> i'm just a bill yes i'm only a bill and i'm sitting here on capitol hill well it's a long long journey to the capital city it's a long long wait while i'm sitting in committee but i know i'll be a law someday at least i hope and pray that i will but today i am still just a bill
1: well, but this, well, is, this big. is big. Yeah. Yeah. Because speed limit signs don't work. Put up a sign that says 35 miles an hour, the drivers of the cars don't care. They go 45, 50 miles an hour, but this will levy a fine on people who are 11 miles over the speed limit.
2: It's a big bill. It's also kind of a minor bill because it, there's it limits to 150 cameras throughout the entire state of California and these fines are
1: quite small. It is a small step in the right direction. Well, and I was also talking about trying to get more allies from road bike riders and racers, you know, there's what millions of road cyclists out there, if they could
0: all be supporting safe streets in some way, right, and they have an
1: interest skin in the game, right? I mean, they're doing a couple hundred miles a week on the roads. So the safer the roads are the better. Some of them are definitely people who could be
2: brought into advocating for safer streets. I think some of them might basically be just drivers. They, they do this as a form of exercise.
1: Right. Now I never drive to ride. I ride from home. I don't drive the car to the beach to ride. I ride to the beach. I don't yeah. drive the car to the park.
2: One of the things I like about riding is where can I go on
0: my bike from my house? Right. We've talked a lot about Los Angeles, which is appropriate since... So many of our listeners are in Los Angeles at KPFK, but we have a story from Western Massachusetts where some of our other listeners are. And the city of North Adams that had a First Friday's event in their downtown, and they focused on bikes. So, Pedal to the Metal was this event in North Adams, which is famous for the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. So, they had children getting bike safety tips in the bike rodeo. There was a kids' slow ride, a bike decorating party, free helmets and lights from Mass Bike and Northern Berkshire Community Coalition. I talked to the Northern Berkshire Community Coalition health and wellness coordinator, Jesse Byrne.
5: We are here with First Fridays to organize the Downtown Bike Around, which is a time for newbie riders to come together and learn how to ride in traffic and ride safely on the road, learn signaling, get safety gear, helmets, reflectors, lights, all that jazz so that they're safe on the road.
0: And what's the rationale behind this? What's the
5: uh... purpose behind it? There's actually a lot of people who ride their bikes but they're riding them on the sidewalks, they're riding them against the flow of traffic, all the no-no's or not signaling correctly or just not hand signals use at all. So the purpose for this is to get people used to doing that or and also to build the bike culture in the area. We're trying really hard to get the bike trail completed. The more community members see people on bikes, it'll help build that bike culture.
0: It starts with the kids?
5: It starts with the kids. You get the kids involved. You get the parents involved. You get They bring their friends.
0: Northern Berkshire Community Center Coalition it doesn't do just bikes, obviously, but they definitely are heavily involved with promoting bikes, right?
5: Absolutely, yes. We run the Northern Berkshire Bike Collective, and it is geared towards people who need a bike for transportation or who would like to get a first bike and maybe don't have $500 plus to spend on a high-tech bike. So different ways that people can get a bike is one by paying for the bike, which is at a discounted price because they're all secondhand and they've been repurposed and restored. Or you can earn a bike if you don't have the money to put towards it, or you like volunteering, you can use volunteer hours to pay for your bike and the purpose too for that is to build awareness and to build knowledge so people know how to take care of their bike how to maintain it if they get a flat on the road they know how to change it do the quick repair type things
0: what kind of organization is the Northern Berkshire Community Coalition
5: so we are a nonprofit organization and we have everything basically from my position at health and wellness which is also a community health worker piece. So that's sitting down with people one-on-one, trying to help them navigate healthcare systems, helping them with follow-up appointments. We also have a family resource center that does parenting classes, grandparent classes, and we have a youth department as well. And we have a prevention department as well that works on healthy and active lifestyles as well. So there's a lot of crossover, but, pretty much have everything that the community gets involved with.
0: Bikes are part of that because it's like a public health issue, right?
5: Absolutely. So more avenues you present for people to be outside and active, we have a gorgeous space for people to be active in. There's a slew of trails. We actually do have great towns for riding in as well. The more spaces that you provide opportunities, the more that encourages people to get out and experience life um, either walking or pedaling. So thank you,
0: Jesse Byrne, yeah. for a pedal to the metal.
5: Absolutely. Thank you. Okay.
0: That was Jesse Byrne. The Northern Berkshire Community Coalition Bike Collective that Jesse mentioned in that interview is talking about donating a vintage bike collection to the Museum of Contemporary Art there in North Adams to pilot a bike share fleet. You'll be able to use these vintage bikes? That's what it sounds like. I love Um, that. Yeah. At the museum, we have someone else from pedal to the metal in North Adams, Nick Russo. He's the senior transportation planner with Berkshire Regional Planning Commission. He's a big bike advocate in Pittsfield nearby. Is there like a heavy metal theme here?
6: I guess so, yeah. We got some nice classic rock blasting on the, the sound bar here. It's like kind of echoing through the whole street uh, canyon, and it's pretty cool. We got like, an obstacle course, um, some lawn games out on the street, showing kids the uh, the bike obstacle course. We have a few folks encouraging kids to, to get through the course. We'll kind of work with them to do their bike skills, like signaling, ABC checks, and looking around while they're riding. Sometimes they'll look backwards and I'll hold up an arm. They'll tell me how many arms I'm holding up so they can kind of get used to looking around their whole surroundings when they're riding their bike in motion, their road riding skills.
0: Is that through the curriculum of the League of American Bicyclists?
6: It sounds like it's something that's been, yeah, definitely iterated on, um, both from like the League of American Bicyclists standpoint, the Safe Routes to School kind of curriculum as well, teaching kids these, these road biking skills, yeah. It's a bike rodeo, and they have these, how often? Uh, well, this is the second one I've been to helping out in the Berkshires in the past month um they kind of happen on a as-needed basis it'd be great to have a regular occurrence but right now we kind of work with partners who are interested like schools or the the downtown chamber of commerce here for the first friday so i'd love to see more happening getting kids used to cycling at an early age you know getting them confident and well trained on on how to ride a bike safely with traffic as we still kind of have the paradigm here in north america where you got to share the road a lot get kids used to riding on the pavement being aware of their surroundings, getting confident in riding with traffic, keeping a good pace and and knowing the rules of the road. So I think it's great to start as early as possible, getting that just normalized and and a part of everyday getting around town. I I think it's really important. Thanks, Nick. Sounds good. Thanks, Nick.
0: So that was Nick Russo before that was Jesse Byrne. I should mention Safe Routes to Schools
1: was there. You know, Nick, I think that these events are great. I've I've worked on them a couple of times and it really gives kids agency with the bikes, knowing that they can do all these different things and that they're allowed on the street and they're supported by different groups and their parents to get out and ride the bike. They get a new helmet, like you said, or a bell, some lights. Yeah.
0: So next we have our Toronto Bike Talk correspondent, Madeline Bonsma-Fisher. She interviews Jamie Fisher about some research Jamie did on bike data using Strava. Perfect.
7: Hi, Jamie. It's so nice to be chatting. We've met before in person, and it's really great to be talking on this podcast. I'm talking to Jamie Fisher, who's a researcher from British Columbia, who studies cycling patterns across Canada. And so I want to start by asking you something I actually don't know about you, which is how did you get interested in cycling, both yourself and in cycling research?
8: Are you sure you want this long and winding story? It's so long. I'll give you the short version. (laughs) Yeah, so I became interested in cycling in another lifetime. I lived in Jasper, Alberta, and I moved there from the West Coast immediately after I graduated high school. And there I was introduced to mountain biking and I thought that was all I was ever going to do for my whole entire life was never going to do anything else. I loved it so much. And I at that time became a mountain bike mechanic and like a regular bicycle mechanic as well, but focused on mountain bikes. And at some point I had to leave Jasper just family and life and decided to go back to university but biking was still a huge part of my life at that time I was like let's try commuting in the city never done that so I kind of got my first introduction to like what it's like to cycle in a big busy city with lots of that cars was Vancouver. I guess it's not a huge city but Victoria and cycling around on Vancouver Island So I fell in love with mountain biking in the mountains and then went back to university and just cycled like a normal person to get around. I didn't have a car and all that. And then in my fourth year, I was studying geography and I got pulled into a GIS lab that was studying cycling safety. And I was completely hooked when I realized you could turn your literal love of bicycles into meaningful work about cycling and safety and inclusion. I was hooked. So I worked on a project called bikemaps.org for a lot of years. And then I started graduate studies on cycling intervention. So when cities put in infrastructure or make changes to the environment, how does that change the cycling outcomes? And so it started with a love of biking and then it continued with a love of data, a love of maps, a love of just everything about making cycling just more possible and doable for people. And so it's more of a city
7: focus these days. I love that, that. Almost feels like my story too. So it's really cool to hear that. I want to talk about your research, but let's come back to bike maps because I want everyone to know about bike maps. So, can you just say what bike maps is?
8: Yeah, I want everyone to know about this too. So, it's an online web platform and it kind of feels like Google Earth. And you could go into it and you map locations where you've had cycling crashes or near misses or where there are hazards. Then we work with the data and work with cities to make improvements. And so We could do all kinds of different mapping activities to find hotspots, for example, of where there's cycling injury or hotspots where there might be an injury. So what's really fantastic about bike maps is it captures near misses. And there's no other way, like many cities and official mechanisms like police reporting and hospitals are not capturing those, but they can be indicative of something that's going to happen. And so bike maps is really a fantastic tool for capturing those data that aren't anywhere else in our data sets that we're normally looking at for studying safety. And you can have some pretty practical outcomes from getting crowdsourced data. For example, in Victoria, there was a real problem with people colliding with deer who were on our multi-use trails. There's a lot of beautiful suburban neighborhoods outside the core, lots of trees and the nature of the island. And there's an overpopulation of deer and people riding fast on road bikes were colliding with them, getting very hurt. So that showed up in bike maps. So it's an example of that, but it's completely crowdsourced. So all regular people submitting their data.
7: That is wild. I would never have thought to even wonder if that was happening. So that's amazing. No,
8: of course, right? Yeah, people were crashing with other things too. It
7: was often on the regional trail network,
8: but there's probably similar trails in many other cities, but like trees all around you and somebody
7: had crashed with a raccoon as well. Just animals. Animals can be a hazard. And this is worldwide. Anybody anywhere can use this. Anyone anywhere can map
8: their collisions, and we have mapping across many countries, actually. It was created by Trisla Nelson, who's down in the States at UC Santa Barbara now. And there's kind of like a partner web mapping platform called Walk Roll Maps as well, and that's focused on pedestrian access. So it's a similar idea of getting these different perspectives on cycling
7: or walking and
8: rolling that we can't
7: get from regular data. I think it's so important because so often when you're out there, something happens and you think like, who would I even tell this to, right? There's no mechanism for reporting it. So this Hmm. is a really cool thing.
8: Yeah. And it's really awesome because you have the opportunity to sort of say what happened in the incident. And so we could go in and read the narratives of what happened. So you get a lot more context too about like, instead of just a hotspot being available or visible on a map, you can get a sense of maybe what's happening
7: there. Right. So there's this theme in your research of using crowdsourced data and bike maps is one of them. And you've also done a lot of work with Strava. The fitness app has a platform for generating all this crowdsourced data. So can you talk a little bit about that data source and what makes it really cool and unique? Yeah, there's so many things about that. So one of the challenges with studying
8: cycling and Safety in cycling and equity in cycling is that there's a major data gap on who is biking, when they're biking, where they're biking, but we need this to understand the pattern. So cities may be strapped for resources. So operating a counting program can be difficult. And so Strava is very different in that it's bicycle counts, people using the app on every segment of every street at one hour resolution. And so we can get complete spatial mapping and a sense of where people are going in the city at any given time. So That is sort of the biggest perk of it. It's really uncommon in any other context to be able to map at the network level or look at patterns at that network level. And so yeah, we can use it to understand how patterns change. If a city installs like a new cycle track, for example, you can literally see where people are riding and how that's changing. We can use it to understand safety. So it can be a data source that we use to calculate crash risk. And there's all of these incredible subsets inside Strava that we can pull out that show us different patterns than we see when we look at the full sample of Strava. And so that is really interesting because we could get at many different aspects of cycling to get a more
7: complete picture. It's interesting that you're talking about kind of having more holistic information, but at the same time, Strava, the app has a perception of being used primarily by people who are doing fitness style riding and recreational riding, particularly young people, particularly white people, and particularly men. So can you say a bit about like, is that true? And then with that, how do you use this to talk about cycling as a whole and about equity and groups that are represented? I love that question. And it is completely true.
8: The big trade-off of Strava is that it's a biased sample of ridership. So it's heavily oriented to fitness, and it was first marketed sort of to elite athletes who were going to use it to train. And so that's who the main users are. And so if we're taking Strava at face value, then essentially we could be embedding inequities in our analyses and work because we're taking data from the group who is already the dominant group in cycling in Canada The parity between who's riding is more equal. In high ridership countries, in low cycling countries like Canada, it tends to be male-dominated, younger, whiter. So if we use data who's created by this demographic, then we're essentially planning for them and evaluating how the intervention impact their ridership. And so that's not really what we want to be doing. We want to be raising equity for different groups so we can actually use the subsets of Strava. So if we take away those intense rides, so fitness ridership tends to be like longer trips, lots of hills in locations where regular folks aren't riding. To go do their errands or whatever. So if we take those trips away, we're left with a sample of Strava that's actually more representative of the types of trips we're interested in looking at. So I think to that first question, yes, it's biased, but there are ways that we can put it to work so that we can get value out of it because it's a huge data source, like millions of records and the temporal aspect. There's just so much data in there that we can actually just subset it away, take away those trips that are not representing what we're interested in. But at the same time, I'd love to say that the recreational ridership is important in the sense a lot of people do it for health and wellness, and those conditions where people are riding are also not safe. So it's important to understand like safety for recreational ridership if we're thinking along the lines of equity at all the different intersections of cycling. So what I've learned is if we take away those very dominant trips, then we can look at different patterns and get more information. There's new insights hiding in there. So we have labels that we can look at women's ridership specifically. That's a data subset that we rarely have access to. So if we're counting people on bicycles in a regular bike program, it's not often that we're getting demographic data as well. And so in this way, it's bringing women into the conversation when they were excluded previously. So they're in the data, we're bringing visibility. If we use this subset, women are available in the data. They're visible in the data. They're visible on the map. And in my research, this has been a subset of Strava that's actually the most representative of all cycling. So we take Strava, when we get it, we need ground truth data to compare it to. And when we compare the women's subset of Strava to actual counts of bikes on the ground, the women subset comes as close as we can get, actually, to observed patterns on the ground. So that's really amazing, I think, in terms of women's visibility in cycling. It's very binary, the way that Strava is approaching gender at this point. So when I say women, I mean people who have identified as women on the app, but still that visibility, that ability to look at where women are riding, where they're not riding can be very informative. And just on that last point, I think with equity and Strava, another really interesting thing we can do with it is actually look at where people are not bicycling. So we can see in many cities, these dark spots where there's no Strava activity. And I think that's also an equity clue on like, is the environment in that location, maybe not particularly fun to ride in, not safe to ride in, things like that. So there's lots of ways we could slice the data up to get at different pieces of equity that we're interested in.
7: So you're using an imperfect data set, but that has so much richness in it still to try to learn what you can about this very important topic.
8: Yeah, so Strava is considered big data. And I think there's always ways that we could take a critical or equity approach to the data itself. And what can we unearth in this massive data set? How can we make it useful? And so yeah, Strava, there's a lot of possibility for that. Then we bring it together with other equity data, we get a much more complete
7: picture. So you were working on your PhD, you just started grad school, I believe when the pandemic happened just started yes. PhD. Um, so that changed a lot of people's plans, but it also led to some really cool opportunities for your research where you were looking at pandemic-related changes in cycling. So can you share some of the highlights of what you found in that research? Yeah. Okay. The highlights. I'll continue with the
8: Strava theme just because that was sort of my biggest clue as to what was going on. So when we went into lockdowns in the first year of COVID and sort of the spring, summer of 2020, Many, many, many more people started using the Strava app. And this is likely because all of our activities were canceled, all of our races and things like that. And people were going online to connect with each other. So when that happened, we were able to see where people started riding and through the lens of Strava, there was a lot more riding for recreation. But what I found was that women were actually leading that change. So many more women started using Strava and many more women started taking up cycling during that time. So that's one interesting pattern. And that was visible in Strava. And then the other thing was we saw less cycling into the downtown core for regular commuting trips and more cycling around at different times of the day. And this is not true for everybody, but a large demographic of folks who started working from home who may have been using those commuting routes to town started riding at different times. So different routes became busy different times of the day had increased ridership. Like our normal morning and afternoon commute peak went away and there was sort of just like a spike in the middle and a spike in the afternoon. So the temporal pattern shifted and lots of cities around the world saw these increases in demand for cycling. And so moving from the data perspective to like what cities were doing and what people in cities were doing like in city of Vancouver, lots of people were out on the streets and there was a need for more space. And so cities were reallocating street space away from motor vehicles and giving it over to people using active transportation. And that was a really interesting time. And at the same time, I think more people were realizing what it could be like to ride on slower streets with less traffic and really got to experience the benefits of cycling with a little bit less stress. So there's research that's come out that it was a tool that folks were using to support their mental health and wellness, as well as get around, right? So patterns shifted massively. They're still kind of different, but it was variable by city too. So it depends where you were and I guess how
7: much infrastructure you had, how many people were living there.
8: But in some of these larger cities, there was a massive increase in room for space to ride.
7: This has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. We can close by just talking about a moment of bike joy when you really felt like you were living the good life on your bike.
8: I love that question so much. I feel bike joy every time I ride my bike. So as you know, grad school is really tough. Biking has just been something that grounds me and connects me to the land. So I had a full circle moment after I defended my PhD last week, where I realized just how much bikes have been the literal vehicle for my personal and educational growth. So I fell in love with it in the mountains, studied it for years, used it to connect to the land. And here I was back on my bike, feeling that same sort of joy that's persistent every time I ride it, feeling inspired, feeling sustained. And I'm celebrating being a first-generation learner in my family. And so my bike joy moment was just realizing how important that practice has been to that journey. And it's very
7: special. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Jamie Fisher, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Madeline.
0: And that was Jamie Fisher talking to Bike Talk correspondent, Madeline Bonsma-Fisher.
1: You know, that's great because we, we need that data. You know, Strava is one of those apps that's used by a lot of road bikers. I don't think it's used that much by commuters. Some cities have have actually encouraged cyclists in the city, commuters, to join Strava so that their rides are recorded commuting to and from work. Mm.
2: I like the idea of like a company like Strava interfacing with a you know departments of transportation. And sharing data. But I know that like in the past in California, there have been attempts to certain levels of success about, you know, getting companies like Lyft and Uber to share their data. And it becomes a war between local governments and private companies that see that as proprietary information. So I wonder. It's interesting that they were able to access it
1: and use it in the way they did. They sound wicked smart. Wicked smart. How you like them, apples? We've been talking a lot about tactical urbanism and you know how we are all tired of waiting for government to do what they should be doing by making our streets safe. You know, last week we had on people from Chicago and I spoke with Safe Street Rebel, which is a group of advocates in San Francisco of which Stacey Rendecker is part of and Titya Bumbla. They are doing tactical urbanism up in San Francisco on an amazing scale. They're getting TV coverage, they're having effect on budgets. And it ties in so much with what we've been talking about. So let's hear that. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Stacy Randecker and Aditya Bula of San Francisco. Stacy is actually celebrating her one-year anniversary. Stacy, why were you arrested last year?
9: I took a stand on Valencia at the end of a street fair. They wanted to close, open the streets back up to cars. And um, that was the whole reason I was there, is trying to recruit people to pedestrianized the street and because I wouldn't move they arrested me.
1: How have things changed on Valencia since then? Has anything changed?
9: Oh we have a horrific internationally trashed um, center running bike lane that's being put in as we speak. It's been just as awful as we all anticipated. They just need to pedestrianize the street so we're hoping that maybe they will. I don't know. We'll see.
1: You know, one of the things that they tried to do in New York for a long time was just take whatever they could as a stepping stone to a complete street. So
10: hopefully there there will be some positive coming out of that.
9: I don't know. How do you feel, Aditya, about that?
10: Valencia is a mess. Nobody denies that. It's a complicated street. The reality situation is there's like so many different uses people want from the street. And, and the one that's incompatible with everything else is cars, is, is private car through traffic
1: when you design a street for cars it doesn't work for anything else it doesn't work exactly. for people for bicycles for multimodal uh transportation aditya is from safe street rebel and i wonder if you could yeah. tell the audience a little bit about you know who you guys are what you do
10: we're a, a decentralized group of people fighting car dominance in in san francisco and the wider bay area we started when uh the great highway which is a road over near the beach in san francisco it Got closed to cars for the pandemic, and it was like this beautiful long linear park, two miles near the beach. The mayor decided to put uh cars back on on weekdays, and and we were really bummed out about this because we we saw all these people like activating, using the space when the cars were off. So one of our friends put twenty of us on bike Twitter in a, a DM and be like, hey, let's go out and ride really slow in front of traffic and like just you know cause a mess, like, cause a scene, and like do some protest. And we we did it. And it went viral on social media, and then we did it again. And it went viral again, and then we were like, "Oh, there's something here. You know, there's energy. People want to see this type of stuff." And so we were doing that every week for months in 2021. And then we we've sort of realized like, "Hey, you know, a lot of us live all around the city. You know, people live in Oakland, people live in Berkeley. You know, there's a lot of so we want to spread this energy out." And the last couple of years we've been like trying out different tactics to to disrupt car dominance. Uh, and and that's like you know protesting for better bike lanes. We've done protests on Valencia. We we had some popular ones uh, last year called Just a Minute, where when anybody time somebody blocked a bike lane, we would go block the car lane with signs being like, oh we're here just here for a minute, and we let the bikers through. And I think street theater is really cool. It takes like the seriousness away, and people are less mad, but it also makes the point. Some of the like more one-off actions we've done that have been really successful. There was this big battle in California. During the budget cycle in like May to June, about transit funding. And so we were asking for funds in the state budget to subsidize operations. Uh, but Gavin Newsom put out a budget that was not only missing that, it had cut already allocated billions of dollars in capital spending. That would have really hamstrung transit. And so this big coalition formed around this. You know, all these groups sort of were like, hey, this is a major problem. And even though we have like a diversity of tactics and maybe even a diversity of political uh, analysis, we all agree this is a problem that needs to be solved. So our role in that, the Safety Rebels' role in that, was in the direct action. So one of the things we did was help plan what we called a funeral for Bay Area Transit. We made like these models of like a BART train that's like you know six feet long and a Caltrain and AC Transit bus and a Muni bus, and and we like marched with them on our shoulders and we like everybody dressed in their funeral best from a BART station to the city hall and then we like. We were like, oh, everybody, please like mourn the 33 Ashbury. It was like, no, and, and it ended up being popular enough. Politicians came, like Scott Wiener, the state senator, came. Dean Preston, Mandelman, city supervisors came. Even the mayor came and she spoke. This got a lot of press and it was it was great. But we we had a week left for the budget to be finalized and we still weren't seeing any movement. So on Thursday, it's like four days before the deadline. We decided to escalate. We took one of the model trains we built. It was we took the Caltrain specifically. And we took it into market and Octavia where the 101 freeway exits into the middle of San Francisco. And we blocked all four lanes and we staged sort of like a WWE style transit smackdown where we had Caltrain. And then we had one of our friends dressed up as Gavin Newsom with a baseball bat attacking Caltrain. And wow. we were, and I was on, I was on the microphone being the announcer being like, Gavin Newsom's killing transit, please. No, please Gavin, don't kill transit. And it like, we 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 have good relationships with media so they were able to come in and, and, and broadcast it they actually brought a helicopter out for us wow. and so they, yeah, they, I was gonna like, have to, did
1: you get tv coverage?
10: Yeah, we got ABC7 came out, uh the SF Standard had a good report and then once it once it made it uh it, it got it got picked up by other news outlets and that like we were also at the same time we're flyering all the drivers were blocked, you know, we don't want to piss them off too much. Inconvenience them is fine, but we don't want to like make them like angry and like polarize them against our cause. So we're handing them flyers saying like, "Hey, you know, this is what we're doing. We're trying to save transit. If you want to save transit, you know, call the governor. And we're trying to make the point that if BART goes down, if BART loses weekend service, which was at risk, the traffic will be even worse.
9: That's the thing, I can hear your voice on the tape. So clearly, you know, it's like, this will be your lives. If transit (laughs) is cut, you will be in traffic. And it's such a brilliant way of illustrating why transit is so important. That I'm so glad that you talked about it because that's my absolute favorite. I sincerely believe that pushed the needle on it. I mean, it was such a very clear illustration of the problem off the motorists, but you gave them reason why you were showing exactly what was going to happen. And then the visual of having this person dressed up as Gavin Newsom, (laughs) beating on a Caltrain, that model, this huge, like with a baseball bat. And believe me, this intersection is this is the closest we have to L.A. style streets. I mean, it's the right. 101 dumping out onto market, our main thoroughfare. It's a very dangerous street, many lanes going in all directions. This is a major operation, right. and it was very brave, very creative, and I think extremely effective. Um, and, and then
1: what was the outcome in the budget?
10: Yeah, yeah, great, great, great question. So, like, we, we generated 10,000 calls to state legislators over, over the course of a week, which is like for any issue that's big. Uh, we we got the budget on Monday that restored the 2 billion in capital funding that had been cut. And that brings with an uh, additional like 6 billion in federal matching funds. Cause that's the way transit funding works for capital is like states will put up some money and the federal uh, government will match it or with two to three right, or right. five X. And then it put up another 1 billion in operational subsidies. And that's the big part because states right now don't subsidize operations. The federal government doesn't subsidize operations. Operations like our city or fares driving should always be more expensive than transit. That that's Absolutely. that's, a, that's just, yeah. just a fact. Um, yeah. And so I mean, it, we we argue
1: for free transit. I mean, that's 100%, that's our hundred you know, percent. It sounds like Safe Street Rebel is not only a DIY you know protest group, but you guys are also pretty involved in policy. Who who makes the decisions? How do you do it? Because Stacey, didn't you start a subgroup of of Safe Street Rebel?
9: Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I've helped organize with them in the past, but this is my favorite line of Safe Street Rebel is they're not an organization, they're organized. And I just think that is so brilliant and perfectly describes this because there are different opinions on different topics, but everyone that's there centers around no more car dominance. We can't keep going on this way.
10: Almost everything is self-funded. We don't fundraise uh, almost anything. We, we have a couple times, but like never more than a couple hundred dollars. We had people, this transit protest, we had people that were connected to legislative aides in Sacramento telling us like, hey, we can tell with like 100% certainty, like your protest did really, really shift the needle. So like we're building this network of people to know people. And we're just like, you know, the way I think about it is the bike community, the transit community, the pedestrian community, they all exist. We're just the direct action wing of that. We're just the way to like catalyze this energy. So we're really looking for, Where's the energy? What are the needs right now? How can we focus that into something that's that's an action that cuts through this and like shifts the conversation? And we've been developing our tactics on that. But really it's experimentation. You know, And yeah. if anybody has an idea like, oh, I think this action might be good. All you have to do is convince however many other people it needs to take it. There's no central committee saying, no, this is not good. This is-. If you can convince enough people to do it with you, then you got it. Then you got the you action. And and, right. and that's- Well, I was just a, gonna ask that. Account- I, I've, yeah. I've
1: heard that, that you're putting cones on self-driving cars.
10: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, somebody in, in the community discovered that if you put a cone on top of a robot car, they, they stop, they detect something and they, they can't continuously disable. So somebody has to like come and get the cone off. And we thought it was the funniest thing. And so uh, we're trying to stay relatively anonymous about this because Waymo and Cruz are mad about people putting cones on their stuff, but we've been, we put together a video of unnamed members of the group putting cones on top of cars and we cut it together being like, because there's there's a meeting in front of the California Public Utilities Commission on Thursday to expand their operating. And we think this is going down the wrong path. We think, hey, we can solve, pedestrian debts by investing in bikes and transit, we don't need more robot cars that come with them. More
1: cars on the road.
10: Exactly. They come with them with more mining for lithium, more tire wear pollution from the rubber, killing all the salmon.
1: I thought you were putting the cones on just to make them look silly. And I was going to say you should use plungers, you know like a toilet plunger, put that on the car. That,
10: that's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean and anything anything that sticks uh the 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 rubber base of the coat, but no they they stop. They stop in their tracks. They stop. Wow. Yeah, until I mean, you take it off and they're, they're they're right back to working condition. So you know, we're not trying to not trying to like damage anything. Damage but anything that's, or And that's the important trouble.
9: distinction. So many people on the I don't know, I guess we'll call them tech extreme are saying they're vandalizing and they're not, it's not vandalizing. Right. I mean, it's mischief at best. You know, there's right. no harm. It is just a temporary pause. It's similar to what would happen if there was an action and traffic was blocked. Right. So it's not something that's doing harm. Um, it's just an illustration of, uh, I guess, largely frustration.
8: I think. Sure.
1: Yeah. and And yeah. making a point that more cars yeah. is not the answer. Exactly. Exactly. You know, going, so, going back to your protests where you were blocking cars, and and I don't think you can worry about pissing off drivers. Most people get behind the wheel of a car and are pissed off within a block or two, anyways.
10: Right. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, everybody else on the road is your enemy when right. you're in a car, and that's just. Right. But I mean, honestly, a lot of the drivers that we were blocking, a lot of them were like, "Yeah, I get it. You know, I, I'm forced to drive. I don't like driving. I, I do it because there's not enough transit. Like, thanks for doing this. You know. Yeah. Some people were mad, but other people were supportive, so we, we take it. The through line with all of this is we're looking for actions that are like provocative and like viral or that can shift the conversation but we're not trying to cross the line obviously we're not trying to get arrested unless we plan like right? stacy <laughs> <laughs> and getting arrested can be a useful tactic but like you know it's something you have to be intentional about and for some people like immigrants in our group that are on visas we have people of color in the group that are like I personally don't feel comfortable around the cops because of my skin color. If other people want to take these risks, that's fine. But we're generally what we try to do is we call it a bias towards shenanigans.
9: The one thing I'm interested about is, and I love the word shenanigans because that that perfectly sums up, you know, the sort of the spirit of the things that are being done. It's playful, um, right? Um, but now I'm curious your thoughts on the contrast of like stop to Kindermord. So that's mm. like death, like dying in the street. like, yeah. And that's how they did it back then. Do you feel like, well, we're trying to do an evolved version of that? Or is that something you would consider to put in your toolbox? Or I don't yeah. know. How do you feel about that?
10: Stop the Kingdom is one of our biggest inspirations in terms can, of the tactics. Can you explain what that is so the audience knows? Yeah. So Amsterdam in the 70s looks like San Francisco today, like a beautiful city choked with cars. And they had a wave of kids being killed by cars. And so they had this group called Stop the Kinderboard, which is Dutch for "Stop the Child Death," um, that was doing direct actions in the street. They, like Stacey mentioned, they had a die in, in front of the Rijkshall or their like Parliament Building or the City Hall maybe. They had block parties where they block off the street. They they were doing a lot of like very in-your-face actions, pushing the needle, setting the agenda. And that's what direct action does it sets the agenda. Amsterdam, you know, made serious strides to put bike infrastructure and their toolkits. And, you know, we see Amsterdam today as a bike city because of that. And if you look at Amsterdam in the 70s, it's almost unrecognizable. And right. so we're, and we're like looking to move San Francisco and the Bay Area and all the country in that direction. And so, yeah, I think Stacey, we're, we're definitely taking those tactics. We're trying to identify what is the point where we can put our thumb on the scale and really right. tip it and, and what tactic will work best there. So yeah, nothing's out of the question.
1: People often say that car crash deaths are the leading cause of death for children that's and, true uh,
9: in, in the that, world it's in the world now because yeah. sadly in the u.s we've allowed guns to take over yeah. right. and G- so guns-,
10: guns pass cars uh right. which is terrible i mean that's awesome. america's two evils right cars yeah. and guns I uh, totally they're, they're saying same, same thing cars are like pointing a loaded gun at somebody i've had people drive their car into me at a protest like that's pointing a loaded gun at somebody you know right you know, i no think process. if you were
1: to stage a uh, die-in with children that, that oh, would get yeah. a lot of attention. Definitely, you know, have, it would. Have it the would. advocates bring their children and yeah. then step away and just have the children on the ground. I've taken part in a few die-ins and they're always moving. Yeah, um, 100%. So, well, c- That's can you tell suggestion. the audience how to find Safe Street Rebel and how to communicate and how to pass on ideas or how to join?
10: We have, we're on most social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Mastodon, at, at Safe Street Rebel. Um, Are you on threads or not? Not. Uh, actually, maybe. Maybe somebody's made a thread so far. It's, it's up to whoever wants to run it. I'm not running the threads. That's what a sustainable movement does. It allows people to come in and come out when they have energy and capacity. We have a website at safestreetrebel.com.
1: Well, the Diddy Abumla of, of Safe Street Rebel and Stacey Wendecker, all around San Francisco transportation advocate and uh
9: jailbird i don't know jailbird um, maybe
1: yeah <laughs> thanks for all the work you're doing i just love some of the ideas and thanks for coming on bike talk yeah thank you the takeaway for me from that interview was that a lot of their direct action was targeted to a specific cause and they even went as far as printing up leaflets and handing out leaflets to some of the drivers that they had to inconvenience to explain what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I think when you follow it that way, your chances of success, of having success, are much greater. For sure. It does,
2: to me, seem like one of the most dangerous types of you know advocacy or protest, where you don't know who you're riding in front of, and you are literally putting your life in danger. There are people who have mowed groups down and individuals down, and, and it's just... It's a very brave way to attack this.
1: There's safety in numbers. And that's that's what's nice about those group rides.
2: I agree. That's why I always ride alone.
1: (laughs) Well, we want to do a direct action ride here in Los Angeles. And we encourage anybody from Western Massachusetts or Detroit to come down and join us. We haven't picked a date yet, but we're shooting for the end of summer, early fall. If you have any ideas about what the direct action should be for, we were talking earlier that it might be to extend the LA River bike path from North Hollywood all the way into downtown. Yeah, I like that idea. It Doesn't have to be LA. Right.
0: Yeah, we could cover any of these anywhere. Just go to biketalk.org and click the email and send us a email. Now it's time for a word from Uncle Dan.
4: Society needs the, the help of ideas like Bike Talk because Bike Talk can help us to have ideas for some other kind of transportation besides automobiles and uh, having a way to get around other than than cars will help the world to have the civilization and cars could destroy the human race because cars are so polluting that the unhealthiness of cars pollutes everything and and especially the the young people today they, they, they can't afford cars too much anymore they crowd the freeways and everything and so really, you can see how it's only practical for us to to have other kinds of transportation besides cars. People are more and more interested in in ideas to to get around other than the pollution of cars. And so, so really, the the health of our world depends upon common sense ideas like bike talk. And it starts with an idea. Everybody, be safe out there. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic,
0: head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week.
4: Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.